Hello, my name is Adrian Goldberg and welcome to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times is what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. This time, a disturbing investigation into the UK's proposed deportation of asylum seekers to Rwanda, a policy heartily endorsed by incoming Prime Minister Liz Truss, who has said that she will support and extend the scheme to other countries. The Byline Intelligence team has unearthed details of a second deadly protest in Rwanda involving refugees and local security forces. In the first, in February 2018, 12 unarmed refugees from the Kiziba camp were massacred after taking part in a protest. We've discovered that in a separate incident two months later, another would-be migrant housed at the same camp was also shot dead by police after further unrest. Our reporting team, Ian Overton, Sean Norris and Sasha Lavin, has also discovered that a monitoring committee designed to oversee the treatment of deportees hadn't been established before the first planned flight out in June. This was only halted at the 11th hour, when the European Court of Human Rights intervened. Our team has also raised concern about the Home Office's clarity around Rwanda's human rights record, and the fact that the deal is underpinned by a memorandum of understanding rather than a formal treaty. We'll hear from one of our reporters, Sean Norris, shortly, along with Matilda Bryce from Freedom From Torture, which has provided evidence to the High Court for a judicial review into the scheme. First, though, just a reminder that the Byline Times podcast is funded by subscriptions to the Byline Times, our wonderful monthly newspaper, We can report without fear or favour and hold the powerful and the rich to account because our funding comes from ordinary subscribers, people like you. There's no corporate interest or millionaire backer telling us what to say. So please, if you can, do subscribe to the Byline Times. You'll get more details at bylinetimes.com. That's at bylinetimes.com. And if you've already taken out a subscription, thank you. So then, to Matilda Bryce from Freedom From Torture, and first, Sean Norris. Why was the Byline Intelligence team so keen to get to grips with this story? We wanted to look more into the Rwanda scheme after my colleague Ian Overton was refused a journalist visa to go to Rwanda and look at the human rights situation in the country. Now, Ian's sort of focus when he was planning on going to Rwanda was to look at the aftermath of a an incident in February 2018 where 12 Congolese refugees were killed by state forces. And these refugees were protesting at the Kaziba refugee camp in Western Rwanda about the conditions that they were facing. During that time, the United Nations and other agencies had had to cut some of the funding towards the camp and there was food shortages and you know, horrific testimonies of women being forced into prostitution to make ends meet. And the refugees went to the UN building and protested and violent scenes and violent clashes broke out and ultimately 12 people were killed and two women suffered miscarriages as a result. And there were also lots of injuries. So obviously Ian had his journalist visa refused. He came back to the UK. We were like, okay, let's keep looking and digging into this. And what I started doing was to go through local newspaper reports about Kaziba and the area around it. And what I found out was that on the 29th of April, there was a second protest, which led to a 13th killing of a Congolese man. Um, And I apologise, I'm not able to pronounce his name, but I think it's Elisi Kanyandekwe. And again, apologies if I've mispronounced that. 
So this young man was shot during the protests and a child was injured when a tear gas canister was thrown and it hit the child on the head. And the man died of his injuries later on. And the reason that we wanted to bring this to light is not, you know, obviously there's a good reason because people should know if people have been killed. I mean, it's a horrific human tragedy if anyone is killed in, in any kind of violent situation. But when we were looking through the Home Office documents about the Rwanda policy and a decision to deport people who were seeking asylum in the UK to Rwanda, should they come via the channel, we found reference to the killing of the 12 Congolese refugees. This is something that's been widely reported. There's been a report from Human Rights Watch about it. It was widely reported in local news media at the time. And the government said that it was unclear what had happened during these violent clashes. That is in itself debatable, but also that there had been no other incidences since or no similar incidences since. And what we found with this additional killing in April is that there has been an, an incident since. And yes, I imagine that we could argue that it's almost the same incident. <laughs> I don't know, like it's a sort of similar timeline, that they're in similar places. But the fact that you had two distinct protests, which led to people dying in two separate occasions, I think is worthy of note. And what we also found really concerning is that when we approached the Home Office about this, they just didn't have a response. They gave us their usual response about the Rwanda scheme, that it was a positive thing, that they were pushing ahead with it, that it was going to help sort of deal with trafficking and deal with the issues around people smuggling. But when we pressed them to be like, can you please respond about what we found about the killing of refugees and the treatment of refugees, they were like, we were not going to give any further response to your questions. Just so we're clear, though, the initial incidents, which has been reported in February, in which 12 protesters were killed, was one incident. And mm. the incident in April, two months later, that you've identified was another incident. So yeah. the information on which the Home Office has been working is incorrect. It doesn't have the full facts. And as Byline Times, as the Byline Investigations team, you have found out information about the situation in Rwanda that the government doesn't appear to know. I mean, that's our assessment of it. That seems to be the case. You had this February 2018 protest, which re resulted in people being killed, and an April 2018 protest, which resulted in a further person being killed. And I feel uh, when I was doing research, you know, it's almost a sadness. This man has been forgotten. His his name is not reported. His name is not known beyond these few kind of local news reports at the time. And so I think we need to talk about what happens to refugees in, around the world and the dangers that they live under. And this is, you know, it's dangerous for refugees in countries beyond Rwanda, but we're sending people to Rwanda in order to become refugees in that country. And yet there's this evidence of violence against this really vulnerable community. Yeah, I think what's really disturbing as well is that Ian Overton from the Byline Investigations team, as you say, was denied a visa. He was going to look at the aftermath of the first group of killings. And it almost seems as though the Rwandan government and the UK government are actively suppressing investigation into this. They don't want us to know what the true situation is in Rwanda. So this is really concerning. I mean, Ian Overton, he's head of the byline intelligence team. As far as I can recall, he's reported from 21 war zones. You know, he's very experienced. He's won multiple awards for his international reporting. And yet when it came to going to Rwanda, he was denied a visa. Interestingly, 
a reporter from the Daily Mail did get a visa and the Mail published this piece about how people living in um, the Gashura resettlement camp in Rwanda were having a really positive experience and really enjoyed being in Rwanda. So it was like, okay, so this really positive piece about the situation, a journalist was given the visa, even though no people who have been resettled to the Gashura resettlement camp have remained in Rwanda, they've always moved on to a third country or returned to their country of origin. So it does feel like there is this kind of worrying lack of transparency. And Ian's piece as part of our package on this investigation is going to look deeper at the treatment of journalists, both foreign and domestic in Rwanda, as well as looking at human rights issues around detention of people and general repression of freedom of speech and freedom of expression in the country. Matilda, what do you make of this? I mean, I think this is just additional evidence that shows that there are serious deficiencies and concerns about Rwanda's human rights record, particularly around political dissent, freedom of speech, you know, freedom of association. And it is really distressing to hear about the killings of, of these refugees back in 2018. And I think the UK government is aware and they should be aware of these human rights concerns. Their own kind of senior civil servants, the UK High Commissioner to Rwanda, they've all shared concerns around this Rwanda-UK refugee removal scheme. I think really, you know, from, from our perspective, the UK, you know, has a responsibility to protect refugees who arrive in the UK to claim asylum and removing them to any country, you know, regardless of the human rights record is, is inappropriate. And it's really a shirking of that international responsibility. We're concerned that there will be, you know, there's a high risk of um, mistreatment for particularly torture survivors and other vulnerable people who could be removed to Rwanda and have their claims processed there. So this is a scheme that is incredibly concerning. It should be completely scrapped. And you've submitted your own evidence as Freedom From Torture, Matilda, to the High Court that you believe exposes why the Rwanda scheme is a poor one. Just take us through some of your, your key evidence. Yeah, we, we've submitted a witness statement to the High Court, which will be considered this week. It's drawing on our kind of expert medical legal um, experience working with torture survivors claiming protection in the UK. One of our key concerns is if people arrive irregularly and are detained and then enter some kind of accelerated procedure for removal to Rwanda, if that person is a torture survivor or a trafficking survivor, there's huge risks that they won't be able to disclose that kind of really critical evidence around the mistreatment they've experienced previously before being removed. It can take sometimes many years for someone, a torture survivor, to be able to build up that kind of relationship with a caseworker to be able to disclose that really critical information in their asylum claim. And we're really worried that right now the government hasn't ruled out removing torture survivors or trafficking survivors to Rwanda. And there seems to be insufficient kind of screening mechanism to ensure that people with those particular vulnerabilities aren't removed. However, our position would be that you know, no one should be removed, kind of regardless of whether they're a torture survivor or not. Sean, one of the disturbing features of the scheme is that the agreement with Rwanda is not underpinned by an international treaty, but rather by a memorandum of understanding. That might seem like a trivial matter to the casual listener, but it really isn't, is it? I think from the very beginning, there's been quite a lot of misunderstandings about what this scheme is. And 
and what it involves. But the, the memorandum of understanding aspect is really important because what it does is it means it's nothing is legally binding and it doesn't confer rights or obligations. And I'm sure I've, like people who've listened to our podcast before will recognize the sort of theory of good chaps and if government. And that's what this reminds me of. It's like if everybody just plays by the rules, it'll all be OK. And we know that the sort of good chaps version of government has not been working so well for us lately. So what this means is as an MOU, because there's no rights or obligations, because it's not legally binding, we're just having to rely on the fact that the Rwandan government and vice versa, they have to rely on the fact that the UK government will just do what they said they would do, that they would provide the accommodation and it will be proper accommodation, that they'll provide legal support to you for people putting in an asylum claim and it will be good and it will be comprehensive. But if that doesn't happen, there's nothing really that we can do about it. If the Rwandan government doesn't meet its obligations, and to be fair, there's no evidence that they won't. You know, it's absolutely, everybody has agreed this MOU, they've all signed up to it. It's not like there's going to a sort of evidence that someone's going to be sneaky about it. But it's one of those things where, you know, things can change very quickly. Like geopolitics moves, people's, people's policies change, the situation can evolve, like we're all living through these different crises that could impact on the ability of the government to deliver these services. And so I think it is concerning. And again, when this has been raised, it was raised by Joanna Cherry during the Select Committee on Human Rights. The answer is always, yes, but we've, we've agreed it and it's going to be fine. And, you know, Tom Perskov said that we don't need to worry about this because there is no systematic breach of human rights in Rwanda. And that if there were concerns about the partnership, it would be for ministers to decide appropriately. But I do not envisage these sorts of issues arising. I just feel that as a government, we should have a plan that if those issues do arise, you know, you should have a backup. You should have something there to ensure that if there are issues, we can act and we can take action and we can protect vulnerable people. Tom Perskloff, it should be pointed out, is the Home Office Minister. So he's kind of saying, essentially, we can trust the Rwandan government. We have these agreements in place. But the whole point of a memorandum of understanding rather than, say, a treaty is that somebody who feels that they've been slighted, somebody who feels that they've been mistreated as a result of this policy when they end up in Rwanda has no recourse to UK justice. So we're trusting a government which by our own government's measures has failed pretty badly on human rights. Absolutely. And I think this links to another issue that we raised in our investigation, which is that there's supposed to be this monitoring committee set up in Rwanda. And the role of that monitoring committee is to you know, ensure that the policy is being carried out correctly. It can do spot checks on hotel accommodation. It's there to kind of make sure that people are getting the legal support they need in order to have their asylum claim processed. And yet this monitoring committee has not been set up. So even though they plan to deport people on the 14th of June this year to Rwanda, the mechanism in place to make sure that their rights are being respected did not exist. Now we're being told that there's going to be a second deportation flight in September, and the government has refused to confirm or deny whether the monitoring committee has been set up. And when we were pressed at Home Office on this, it was like, please, can you just answer whether this committee has been set up? They just said, it will happen shortly. So once again, we've got this situation where there's not the ability to hold this policy accountable because the mechanisms that are supposed to hold it accountable are not in place. And that's really concerning because we should at least have a time scale on when the monitoring committee will be in place because you can't deport people to Rwanda and then be like, oh yeah, well, someone will come and check at some point if you're okay. Matilda, I'm looking at 
some of Sean and Ian's figures here. And this is based on the UK government's country information on general human rights. And Rwanda comes 45th out of 49 in terms of its permission of freedom of association, 44th out of 49 in terms of political liberties, 47th out of 49 on physical violence. So it's close to the bottom on these three really important rankings. I mean, it almost beggars belief that we're sending people who may well have been tortured, who may well have been trafficked, or who are in some way so desperate that they would flee their home and come to the UK seeking refuge, that, that we would send them to a country like this. No, I agree. And I think it's very legally dubious whether this, this scheme is a- appropriate at all. And I think ethically, it's clearly... It's clearly wrong for a, um, a far richer country such as the UK, which has strong asylum procedures, to push that responsibility onto a, a lower, like middle-income country. I think also, you know, something we're very, freedom of very concerned about is just it creates such a slippery slope in terms of the whole kind of international refugee protection scheme, which really only continues to function if countries take responsibility for asylum seekers when they cross into their their jurisdiction. And for the UK to say, you know, we don't think we're responsible for making a decision on your asylum claim and we're going to remove you to Rwanda, we're going to push that responsibility onto another country, which we know isn't as well equipped as the UK to, you know, deal with asylum claims. What then stops other countries such as France, Germany, Greece, doing the same thing, setting up similar policies we know Denmark is also in conversations with Rwanda about a similar removal scheme. And you really, you know, you risk a kind of chain reaction where you push refugees back to a point where they actually end up not being able to leave their country of nationality where they may be experiencing persecution or that region. This is deeply troubling. And we know that the vast majority of um, the world's refugees remain in those um, regions surrounding refugee producing countries, which are often lower middle income countries. So this is a key concern for us. The easiest way to remove concerns around Rwanda's human rights record would be to simply not, you know, not remove the UK's refugees there. I'm sure it's going to be an incredibly expensive scheme. That money could be far better spent investing it in the UK asylum system, improving decision making, housing people in a more dignified way. We definitely have the resource and the ability to, um, to do that. Sean, I know that, and Matilda's touched on it there, other countries have either embarked on or considered similar schemes. Israel, most notably, because they have had a scheme similar to ours with Rwanda. What can we say based on that experience? So the Home Office has been clear in responses to our questions that the scheme that they are running now differs from the Israel scheme. I just have to make that clear on, on their behalf. Um, but what happened with the Israel scheme was that people were sent to Rwanda having migrated to Israel. And it was just mired in problems. There was evidence of people being held in what they called prison-like conditions in hotels, a lack of uh, legal support for their asylum claims, evidence of people being sort of coerced into sort of sm- and smuggled out of Rwanda into Uganda. And this evidence, according to the charity Asylos, They said that this evidence was not included in the country information and policy notes when it came to human rights in Rwanda, which is really concerning. 
you know, I think one of the things that almost every migrant rights organization that I've spoken to in the last few months has said is that this doesn't stop people coming across the channel. If people are deported to Rwanda, there's no evidence to suggest that they won't just leave Rwanda and try again because people didn't choose to go to Rwanda. The reason that people come to the UK is because they have ties to the UK. Maybe there's a language ties, maybe there's a, a community, maybe there are family members. You know, as Matilda says, most refugees will go to a sort of neighbouring country, a neighbouring safe country. But when you've come somewhere as far away as the UK, it's because that's the place where you feel safe. That's the place where you have community. That's the place where you have family and cultural ties. The worry with the Israeli scheme was that it just created this revolving door of people going to Rwanda and then leaving straight away and trying to come back to Europe. And there's no reason to think that that won't be repeated. So, yes, it's concerning. And I, I also wanted to say as well, like, whenever anybody's criticised this scheme, the government has responded by accusing the critics of being racist. It's like, what have you got against Rwanda is the kind of rhetoric. And it's not that anyone's got anything against Rwanda. It's not that anybody wants to be critical of a country that is, you know, a middle income country, it's got emerging structure, it's just another country, like, but it does clearly have problems around some issues of human rights. And as Matilda says, the fundamental fact is we shouldn't be outsourcing our asylum system to a country thousands of miles away, we should be open to dealing with our asylum system here, and having a positive, well funded setup that provides the best possible support. And it's hypocritical too for the government to say that this is a deterrent, but then accuse anybody of criticising it of being down on Rwanda. It's like you can't have it both ways. Mm. Uh, Matilda, picking up on that criticism that Sean has referenced there, there are people who say, look, if you criticise the Rwanda scheme, you are perhaps displaying an imperial mindset, the idea that only rich, predominantly white countries like the UK are suitable for dealing with refugees do they have a point i think you know rwanda hosts you know well over a hundred thousand refugees itself already it's a region that has you know security and you know instability issues the uk we take a fraction of the world's refugees and i really think the whole point of refugee convention the whole refugee system is you know international responsibility sharing we definitely could do more to um, play our part fairly in that. And I would almost kind of turn that around and say, I, I almost think it's an imperialist mindset, which allows the UK to think that we can kind of almost get rid of this problem that we have, which is people arriving irregularly and push that back onto another country. We shouldn't be outsourcing that responsibility. The Refugee Convention, it was drafted in the wake of the Second World War, of the Holocaust, in an attempt to ensure that people would never need to have pre-authorization to flee persecution again. And we really risk kind of undermining that key human rights framework by trying to outsource people in, in this way. Matilda Bryce from Freedom From Torture and with her, Sean Norris from the Byline Intelligence team. And you can read all four of their reports into the Rwanda scheme right now, written by Sean, Ian Overton and Sasha Lavin over at bylinetimes.com. And please subscribe, if you can, to our monthly newspaper, The Byline Times. That has content that you won't find online, and your subscription helps to fund the team's brilliant investigative journalism and this podcast as well. So do subscribe. Head over to bylinetimes.com. That's 
bylinetimes.com. I'm Adrian Goldberg. Thank you for listening. And thanks also to everyone who spreads the good word about the podcast online. It really does help and is much appreciated. See you next time.